Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, Panorama focuses on the terrorist gangs who follow one small second division club, Millwall, in London's Dockland. Ladies and gentlemen, broadcasting from beautiful South Bermondsey, this is Achtung Millwall. Hello ladies and gentlemen, Millwall fans around the globe, my name is Nick Hart and I want to welcome you to a midsummer night, Achtung Millwall. Hang on, I've come over all Shakespearean. I'll follow thee and I'll make a heaven of hell to die upon the hand I love so well. I wonder if old Bill Shakespeare had Millwall in mind, and League One especially, when he wrote those words. Probably not, but making a heaven of the hell of this third division is very much the Lions' task when we reopen our league campaign at Shrewsbury on August the 8th. Myself, I can't wait to get back to normal, can you? So in this special edition of the show, we have two very special guests for your entertainment. In part one, Glenn joins me from the This Is Millwall Twitter feed to chew over the cud of the endless boredom of the summer months. Then in part two, CBL Magazine's designer and contributor Neil Crazy Horse Andrews joins me in conversation discussing the impact of both of the world wars on our beloved Lions and indeed on the wider world of football. Achtung, Millwall. Ladies and gentlemen, Achtung Mill is the house podcast of I Left My Heart at Coldblow Lane magazine. And we will be broadcasting weekly from Sunday, August the 9th, courtesy of Acast.com, which is the future of podcasting, taking podcasting to the next level by connecting listeners, creators, and advertisers in a rich and interactive experience. That's Acast.com, A-C-A-S-T.com. Check it out. All right, big welcome to a mid-summer edition of Achtung Millwall. With me tonight is my compadre, Glenn, from This Is Millwall. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Hello, mate. How are you keeping? Oh, it's it's a long summertime, isn't it? I'm, I'm reminded of the desert Silk Road, Glenn, on the road to Xanadu, when you come across an oasis, a caravan Sarai in the middle of the desert, with a little bit of relief, and that's the, the announcement of the fixture list today. How desperate is it when that's what you look forward to? Yeah, it's the uh, oasis in the desert, isn't it? <laughs> 
<laughs> the opening day fixture of Shrewsbury away, and I've actually caught myself refreshing my phone at 9am this morning to, uh, in the expectation it was going to be crew away. Someone published a rumour online that it was going to be crew away, and instead it turns out to be Shrewsbury away. And I'm actually already weighing up ways to get to Shrewsbury. This is this is a, the sad and desperate plight of the Millwall fan, mate. Oh, wait till they change it to a 12 o'clock kickoff. <laughs> don't I've booked me I've, I've booked a cheap um, <laughs> train ticket already, so I don't they don't do that. And it's it's interesting. I don't know what you found from the the announcement. I was actually looking forward to it, and it does sound a little bit um, sad when you repeat this back as a grown man looking forward to the uh, fixture announcement day. But when you look at the range of fixtures we've got next season, it does rather bring home the, the reality of relegation, doesn't it? Yeah, sadly, I think uh, as I'm getting older, I've seen promotions, I've seen relegations, pretty much seen it all. So now it's got to the point where it's like, oh, Burton away, you've not been there. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe it's um, maybe it's just the, the grimness of it all when you look at, you know, I mean, Shrewsbury away would be an interesting day out. Then you've got Scunthorpe. Uh, on, on August the twenty second, and I don't know that. I don't know why that one hurts more than Shrewsbury away. I, I think maybe there's a, you know, Shrewsbury is quite a picturesque town, but I think the idea of going to Scunthorpe later on in August is just it just really hurt, you know. Yeah, I think remember I I'm pretty sure it was Scunthorpe last time we were there. It went absolutely ape shit, and it was kicking off everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, that's something I look forward to, I suppose. But, uh... Well, I can see a little bit of that. I mean, I'm just looking at September's lists here. Port Vale away. Um, obviously, uh, crew. That's the crew fixture that we were we were promised as opening day, but it's actually in September. I'll be away for that one. Uh, and then we, at the end of that month, Wigan away. There's some, there's some long, grim northern trips on Tuesday nights to come. Wigan, I think. I think Fleetwood is an away trip. Yeah. Tuesday night as well. So it is rather, um, you know, it, it brings you down to a bump slightly. That's that's the reality of our situation. But you're right. I mean, we've all seen relegations before, and we'll see them again. But the excitement lasted about two minutes this morning <laughs> until I had cast my eye over the full list. Yeah, well, just uh, I'm actually just scrolling through Twitter now, and we've actually made Sky Sports news. Did we? Nights where it says, here is the opening day fixtures for League One, and it's a tough opening match for newly promoted Shrewsbury. <laughs> we'll see how tough it is on the day, won't we? About that, won't we? Oh, there's no real fizzy fixtures. I mean, I suppose South End on the 28th of December is. Um, I mean, we've got Walsall at home on Boxing Day. That that's going to be a tough call. That, that, whoever does these fixture planning lists has really made the you know the absolute worst of the uh, what is already a thin thin gruel of a season. Um, South End on the 28th of December New, uh, fixture New Year's Day fixture at Barnsley. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you know, it, it does look tough when you look at it. I think the, the other one that caught my eye was the last day of the season. We were away at Gillingham on Sunday, 12.30 kickoff. Um, what passes for a local derby, I suppose, in this league, isn't it? And that could get tasty, could it? Well, I've already predicted it. We're getting promoted and Marquis is scoring a hat-trick. So. <laughs> oh, if only that were true. Mate. Just first, folks. If uh, only that were true. So, yeah, there we are, listeners. You can find the... Um, the uh, list on online, do feel free to look at the, the sheer hellish grimness of our League One campaign next season. Are you, are you, are you looking forward to the season, Glenn? Are you, are you, you know, are you, are you buzzing for it or resigned? Where do you stand on it? Uh, I'm not sure buzzing's the right word, but I am looking forward to it. Um, I think a lot of people probably don't like League One, but there's something almost charming about it in a way because it's the proper support come out again. It's the hardcore. It will um, be hardcore, yes. Yeah, fun away days up north because we tend to 
tend to uh, be a bit naughtier up there and and it's uh, just makes me laugh more and uh, uh, <laughs> i say that now but give it give it about 10 games in i'll be like jesus christ get us out of this league mm. i know i know it's an interesting um, array of fixtures there will be some some tough home crowds i think some of these tuesday night midweek fixtures are going to be tough to get more than you know six seven thousand in for i'm just looking through the list here there's a the other one. there's there's some tough tough looking fixtures as we scan down the list but there we are all we can hope is that our young hungry squad that neil harris has promised us can um, at least fight them themselves near to the the top half of the table in the playoff zone um are you optimistic glenn are you are you are you feeling good about what you see developing in the squad uh yeah i am actually um Maybe stupidly so, I don't know, but uh, I think people are being a bit too optimistic around the, you know, people are saying, oh, we're going straight back up. People are forgetting that it's going to be a young team who are inexperienced. You know, Sid Nelson's had a handful of games. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got a few youngsters coming through um, who've barely played a couple of games. Uh, we've got Mark Quist coming back who, you know, hasn't played for us. He's played like, you know, two games in a season usually. And then goes on loan somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's been some re-signings. I mean, Fred Onyedinma today um, committed his future to Mills, as the as the News of Den puts it. Signed a two-year contract with the Lions. Um, Marquis's return, the, whether he's the prodigal son or not, remains to be seen. He certainly scored goals last year at Gillingham. So you know, at this level, you 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 have to hope that the faith that Harris has placed in him comes good because this is this is probably his last. His last, last, last chance, isn't it? He's had a few last chances, and this is his last, last chance. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think uh, I've, I've made it clear on, on Twitter that, um, you know, my thoughts on Marquis, so I think he has got the ability. I don't think we have given him the chance, actually. Um, I think he's been pissed about by us quite a bit, uh, by different managers. Yeah. He's never had a, a proper string of games, you know. When you look back to someone like Morrison, who didn't score for ages, but was given the time to get used to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, clearly he's had, he's had faith shown in him. We've, we've re-signed him. Harris seems to like him. Um, he's not been given a clear run in the side. You're, you're right. Um, he's going to expect to be a first, uh, you know, first team pick this season after after going to Gillingham and getting the goals that he has. I mean, maybe teamed up with the likes of Aidan O'Brien, um, possibly Fred as a striker or an attacking winger. Um you know, we, we would expect there to be a higher tempo. That seems to be the, the general vibe that's that's coming out of the club at the moment. Whether it's going to be more direct or possession-based remains to be seen. We kind of went old school last season, didn't we, towards the end, in the, in the desperation of the fight, 4-4-2. I'm, I'm actually wondering whether we're going to see that next season, whether it'll be a little bit more of a variation on that. Um, I honestly have no idea. Uh, you know, we haven't seen a lot of what Harris plays mm. unless she goes to the reserves. Um, I imagine he'll stick with what he knows best to start with, probably four four two. A bigger pitch. I mean, he's, he's, he's increased the size of the pitch, which is an interesting development. Um, increased the length of the pitch to 106 metres. So, um, I mean, some have said that's going to favour a long ball approach. I would have thought a shorter pitch would favour a long ball a long yeah. ball game. But, you know, what, what do I know? I'm, I'm just... Uh, that sounds like it favours wing play, actually. Favours wing play. So, you know, you're kind of expecting the midfield to get the ball out wide as fast as possible. Jimmy Abdu has signed, you know, another contract. So there's the ultimate ball winner, especially at League One level, um, with the expectation he's going to feed the white men, wide men, and get it forwards into 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 Marquis, hopefully to get those goals. Um, there's, there's an optimistic little fantasy scenario I've just created for myself there, Glenn, isn't it? Yeah, well, I've got the feeling as well that Paris Karen Hall might have feature heavily next year if he stays fit. But I'm assuming that in that league he does stay fit. 
um, compared to the championship. Well, you know, obviously he jumped up quite a bit. Yeah, so here's my fear. I mean, I think we're in, in danger of building a team of what I call Raheem Sterlings. We're very skillful boys, very, very fast, very quick. And certainly, you know, with touch on the ball, but none of them exactly brutes. And this is a league of, you know, brutal defending, isn't it? I mean, it is. It is a. It's a hard place to be. It looks like a tough league. I mean, all joking aside, when you look look through that fixture list, there are some tough away games, some tough places to go to, where no prisoners will be taken. I just wonder with a, a squad of youngsters like we have, all of whom look like they know what to do with the ball, but do they have the physical presence yet? I'm just not convinced at the moment. There's, there's clearly work to be done on the, on, the, on the squad. Yeah, I think there's got to be a choice to be made, hasn't there? Are we going to try and outplay teams or are we going to try and outbully them? Um, I imagine if there's anyone that knows this league better um, than Harris and Livermore, uh, you know, we're, we're quite lucky with them too. Yeah. In charge, they know they know what this league is like. They, unlike um, Hollowhead, have the ability to adapt to who we're playing. Yeah, I mean, we, we seem to be in the market still for James Hansen, the uh, the Bradford striker. That seems to be a, a, a story that doesn't go away. Whether we'll get him or not, who knows? Uh, he does represent the bully kind of, um, you know, the, the, the bludgeon uh, school of, of attacking, doesn't he? Uh, the squad as it stands at the moment, no, we're not going to bully anyone. We we hope we'll have to hope to outplay them and hope they can't get close enough to kick us because the squad that we have at the minute won't won't intimidate another side on on in terms of physical presence. Yeah, I mean, I know I know that uh, a lot of people are going to groan at me because they know um, my feelings, but uh, yeah, that's why I'm quite surprised we got rid of Don really because you know he he was someone that would knock people about a bit in in the back in that league. Uh, so I was quite surprised to see him go really. Yeah, we can only presume that that was a personality um, thing. In, the, in whether there's a, a direct clash between him and, and Harris, no one knows. But that, in the sense of there's only one king, and that the, the king of Millwall at the moment is Neil Harris. He will call the shots, and any kind of um, you know threat to that will be will be outed. And that's what I think is rather what happened with Alan Dunn. He does represent an alternate power base, doesn't he? And and therefore he had to go. Yeah, well, we we'll, we'll never know. We just you know um, we can assume. Then again, if there was a personality clash, would have Harris played him at the end of last season, realistically, which he did? Possibly not. I mean, it, 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 clearly his, his time was seen as up and he's gone. But you're right. I, I, I think he would have brought a, a certain, um, you know, a certain physical presence to the back. When we did our, our, our previous roundtable show, we had a kind of a quick run round of who to keep and who to lose. And for me, I would have kept done personally. I, I'm with you. I, I think that that was a, you know, a, an odd decision given the the youth of the squad that we have now. I just think we've 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 outed an experienced player there. The one reason I was upset we went down, as, well, obviously it was more than one, but I was especially hoping that we might get hold of um, Hoovield if we stayed up, um, especially yeah. as he's released by South Southampton as well. But uh, rather too expensive, I, th- I fear Glennon. He's uh, you know he's obviously on on money that we are no longer able to afford. So, but no, you're right. He would have been a good defender for, at, at this level, certainly. Um, Another interesting story from the summertime is this kind of um, constant rumour of, of David Ford moving on. He has some kind of clause in his contract that allows him a free transfer in the event of relegation, which, given the number of goals that he shipped last season, seems a slightly contradictory clause to have in your contract, but there we are, he has it. Um, Harris is quoted on the news at Den a few weeks ago saying that he gives any move his blessing, which was an interesting choice of words. Um, I, I'll be sad to see Ford go, actually. I think he does represent a certain... You know, physical presence in 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 front of goal, and again at League One level, he would have been a valuable asset. But he's he's clearly got an international career to to try and chase. 
Well, I'm going to be brutally honest here. If people out there think Ford's a bad goalkeeper, they're fucking stupid. Um, he's, he's not at all a bad goalkeeper. He's like anyone else last season. He had no, there was no confidence there. Not yeah. much of a defence, Glen either last season, well, was it? I mean, the back four kept changing all the time, and then sometimes it wasn't even a back four; it was a back three. He was, he was asked to play as a sweeper role, so he was out of position. Yeah. And then, you know how many games? Okay, yeah, it's a couple of games where he cost well won the couple, but there were some bad choices, let's say. But then, how many games did he save us from not losing or keeping a draw? Yeah, um, I mean, I've always liked David Ford. I, I, I like my goalkeepers to be. A bit like uh, Denzel back in the, the back in the day, you know, big guys that um, both physically and personality-wise dominate the defence, and you know, no replacements is going that we can bring in will do the same job that David Ford has done for us these past few years. Um, I think it's a shame if we lose him, but it does seem rather inevitable. Yeah, to me, it's, I, mean, I agree with you. As a keeper, you need to be an arrogant bastard. Yeah. Um, and in my time as a, as a fan, I mean, I've, I've been going since 93. I've seen three goalkeepers that I think are any good, and that is Keller, Denzil, and Ford. And if anyone wants to tell me there's a better keeper we've had since 1993 than any of those three, then I think they're talking bullshit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 of the three, I would pick Denzil, but um, Ford is a close close second behind him on, the, on, on, that, on that basis. You're right. Um, we shall see. Um, Jordan Archer, I think, is still at the club. He was he was there last season, but we haven't seen him play. So, again, there's so many unknowns with this squad, Glenn, isn't there? There's so many... Um, we're guessing at what kind of play we're going to get. We're going to guess at what kind of structure the squad will have and who's who's going to start. It's, it's a very odd situation to be in, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I understand that Harris is taking him to Portugal, which is what um, Dickhead used to do. Uh, <laughs> who's that you're talking about mate it's your imagination <laughs> you know there's obviously something there you know, there's like certain things in like I think I've used my Wayne Gretzky quote before but there's another one which I've always liked was when I watched a film Invictus and it yeah. was about the uh, the rugby team and they said that um, you know we might not be the best we'll be the fittest and that's what I think is important next year and I think that Harris probably knows it is Harris is kind of thinking that we need to if we can outrun teams in that division, we can out we can knacker them out. Well, some interesting appointments on the um, on the kind of academy support and the the coaching support side of things, and I think that does give a clues to what you're saying there. I think you're right. I mean, there's a quote here from Andy Frampton returned to the club, and I think that's fantastic news. Always like Frampton as a defender, he brought the right kind of Millwall virtues to you know to his job when he was with us, and I think he will do again. But he's got on record saying that hard work is the key to making the grade at Millwall. Um, so clearly, the fitness aspect is going to be, you know, it's going to be seen as key. But interesting, we've also appointed David Connolly, and I was just reading about David Connolly before you and me were speaking tonight. Um, it really does talk him up on 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 the uh, on online. I mean, Scott Fitzgerald really rates him. He's got World Cup experience. He's played at a fairly high level, and he's coming working with the academy kids. So I think. The aim long term is a bit of what, what we started to see last season. That's high tempo but high skill football, which is a it sounds good when you say it, doesn't it? Yeah, and the thing as well, you've got to look at what club we are. We're never ever ever going to have money to go out and buy players. When I mean, we we we're we're, we're fighting over five hundred thousand for some bloke at, at Bradford, you know, and to to a lot of teams that would be loose change. So what we've got to do is concentrate on that youth and build them as Millwall players, and get them in and get them ready to to come up. You know, we got to be. I suppose the best comparison I can think of is someone like a crew Alexandra, not a big team, but they produce yeah. players that every now and then they get, you know, they get up to the championship. They do well. You know, that's what we need. They concentrate on our youth. We can make money from them. 
uh, you know, that's the kind of club we are. Until we get some dodgy Russian dictator <laughs> take over our club, that's what that's what it's that's what it's going to be like. You know, you need to realise what kind of club we are. You know, this all this feel the den stuff. It's it's not going to happen. We are who we are. We should accept who we are and and build on it and and you know embrace what we are. No, and, totally, I agree. Um, I, I think there's nothing wrong with. Let's let's say let's talk about Fred Elgadimo signed a new contract today, two year contract. I don't see any problem with you know we've produced that player, and if there's an offer that comes in from I don't know uh, a major you know Premier League club next season for a, you know a, a good few million for him or whatever whatever the price tag of ten million plus, we'll, we'll take it because that's the kind of business that we are in. That's that's what we have to do to coin a phrase. So I, I think you're right. I think as long as that money is wisely reinvested. That's our other clubs, like the likes of Southampton and West Bromwich Albion and Swansea, have built themselves into to the level that they're at. Um, that's what we have to try and do. You know, you've got to accumulate to speculate rather than speculate to accumulate. So, totally. um, we'll get a lot of money on on, on our massive cup draw with Barnet, though. So, <laughs> you know. it's funny. I was writing an article for we're going to do a new edition of the magazine um, for the Coventry game, be the first home game. And I was actually writing an article um, about the Johnston's paint trophy. So that's that's if that doesn't entice you to buy the mag next season, I don't know what will. Um, but you know, and the League Cup is is to an extent seen in the same bracket of, of a slightly useless pain in the ass, um, akin to a migraine, as I've put it in the article. You know, you, you don't want it, you don't need it. Um, get out of it as fast as you can. But I, I actually think that competitions like the Johnstones Pate and and the League Cup to you know to to a, a higher extent, we should be taking them seriously. I mean, you know, you're right that, that uh, home going to Barnet won't exactly get the um, the punters flooding out. But if we can get past them and we can draw a larger club, then this is this is what we need to be doing. So I actually think that we should be trying to put some effort into the League Cup next season. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, totally agree. With you. Joking aside, you look back to when Rhino was in charge. He took the uh, the windscreen wiper cup seriously, um, got us to Wembley, and that money probably let us keep players like Kale and and Lucas Neal and whoever else was there at the time for for a season or two more. And then in that in that um, trophy, you know, we took the record number of fans for any club to Wembley. So I'm just we made a shit ton of money out of that. I'm destroying my own article here because I'm giving it all away for nothing on this podcast. <laughs> but anyway, who cares? It's a, it's a, you know, we, we do what we do. But we, I, I did a little bit of research into the John Stearns paint, his various other incarnations over the years, Freight Rover, Dayla, Leyland Daff, blah, blah, blah. But it's interesting who's won it. Um, Southampton have won it a couple of times. Bristol City has won it three times. Swansea has won it. And it was Stoke, Stoke City has won it. Uh, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other clubs that have won it have not gone on to progress, so to speak. Um, some have gone into the conference. So, um, you know, it isn't a magic panacea for success, but it's interesting that there are clubs now in the Premier League that actually made an effort to do well in that competition, and you know it, the, the benefits do follow. I, I think we should take these things seriously. So, um, I, I think the acid test is my my final paragraph is the acid test is whether I will actually turn up for a Johnston's paint home <laughs> fixture, and I'm still wrestling with that answer, listeners. So you're going to have to find out when that moment comes. Enough, the, the year that we actually got to that final, I went to every single game apart from <laughs> for A one. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I was there at Cardiff on a Tuesday night when it was about 30 of us. The only, the only, well, the only um, football league trophy is the official competition's title, apart from the sponsorship, but the only um, 
Johnston's paint trophy equivalent game I've ever been to was the Auto Windscreen Shield Cup final in 1999. I've never been to one otherwise. I've, I've always, you know, struggled with the whole concept. But um, I'm trying to convince myself that we should be taking it seriously. So I'd love, love to hear what listeners think to that concept. They should be taking the Johnston's paint trophy seriously. The thing as well is that all three cups, you know, the windscreen wiper, the carling, the FA, you, you pay an entry fee. So if you get knocked out the first round, you've lost money, really. Well, I just think it's, it's a simple thing. If, if we're a sporting business, a sporting you know club, your, your aim should be to win whatever's in front of you. You can't help who you're playing, but you can try and beat them. Beat them. So that's that. You know that that, that approach. I, I do get a sense that is how the club will conduct itself from here onwards. In some ways, I, I do find myself being more optimistic because I think there's a slightly more realistic cut the cloth. You know, cut the cloth according to your means or whatever the expression is. Um, feeling around the place whereas under Holloway I think we were still try, trying to slightly aspire to being something that we, we weren't you know trying to play football at some other other level I think what we're seeing now is Mill it's Mill's, in keeping with Mill's traditions and I, I, I'm feeling good about it we'll, yeah. we'll see, see how long that lasts into August but at the moment I'm feeling good about it yeah, I mean as, as well you know sorry to hop back on the cup thing as well but if we have a indifferent season that go on and win an auto windscreens cup well that's been a successful season, really, hasn't it? We've done oh, totally, yeah. I mean, if, if that were to come to pass, you know, um, a mid to upper table finish, um, a good run in a, in a competition like Auto Win, uh, JPT, or or even the League Cup or whatever, yeah, that's what I would call success. Sure, I mean that that's 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 you know that would be a good outcome for the season. Um, obviously, you know, we, in the end, we want to get promoted and get out of this league. But I think until we're capable of survival at the higher level, I, th- I think that we have to we have to build rather than expect leaps and bounds. Well, do you know what? Do you know what I want? I mean, the, maybe it's not the most ambitious uh, thought process in the world, but I, I mean, I never want to go in the Premiership. I hate. I can't stand it. I hate. It's everything I hate about football. Yeah. What I'd love to be is what we were under when we had Mick McCarthy's manager, a sort of upper mid-table championship side who knocked out big clubs in the FA Cup. I think yeah. the, the reality of modern football, Glenn, is that unless we have, you know, that you, you referred to the right kind of backing the Russian oligarch or, you know, some Middle Eastern type with, with unlimited sums to invest or Far Eastern type, you know, in the end, the economics of a club like ours will dictate what we are. And that is probably going to be a League One occasional championship, maybe a, the odd good run up from there because the numbers, the crowd numbers... And our past history in producing players just means that we we will struggle to progress whether we like it or not. Um, I well, yeah, I can't really argue with that point at all. Really, it's <laughs> depressed, isn't it? Achtung, Milbal. Um, some other news from the from the summertime. Wallace Teagan has taken over as our shirt sponsor um, from the ill-fated Euro Ferries. Um, did you ever get away on that holiday with Euro Ferries, Glenn? Did you ever? You were going to go to France, mate? When you going to get a, a booze cruise or something? No, no, I would have said that the Euro Ferry ferries sailed off into the sunset, but they don't have the boats to sail off in. They so. never showed up in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, well, it's Tegan, a, a company known to the club and you know long-term um, supporters already of Mill, and they're going to be our main uh, club shirt sponsors, a building company, building maintenance, I believe. Um, so that's good news. I, I, that, that's that's uh, again is a you know a, a reversion to traditional mill values of, of of club you know companies from from our own own support coming through. Um, I suppose the other big news of the season is the new kit, new kits. The uh, the first team choice and the and the second team. Um, the first team was a kind of a um, a slightly darker blue version of the old nineteen eighties LDDC kit. Did you did you like it, Glenn? Where do you stand on on the kit? 
Um, I think being an old miserable git, I looked at it and hated it originally. First you hated it, did like, you? Yeah. That's my, that was my first reaction. When I looked at it a bit more, I was like, you know what? It's not. It's not bad at all. I, I still can't stand the socks. Um, Hoot socks, listeners. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I can't deal with those, but the rest of the kit's all right. And then realistically as well, does it even matter? Because you know, all of us that are complaining, all of us that did complain about it on Twitter in our twenties and thirties, and if you're wearing a football shirt, you're a bit of a twat, really. I mean, wouldn't you? So, you're a full kit wanker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Does it even matter? Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's nice to have a, a kit that you look at and you're like, well, that's you know, like we had the uh, the dark blue Dundee blue one for our yeah, um, hundred twenty five years or whatever, and the. Uh, you know, the army kit or whatever. I mean, sorry, I would have had that for the entire season, to be honest with you. But... Yeah, I, mean, I quite liked the new design. It's it's, it's a, a dark blue, white sleeve, um, white trim um, design. It's it's quite, I'm going to sound a bit like Gok Kwan or some one of those uh, fashionistas off the TV <laughs> now, but I think it's got quite clean lines. Um, <laughs> the hoop socks, I, I agree, are interesting. Um, some will like it, some will hate it. But I, I think as a, as a, as a look, um, I, th- I think it's it's quite nice. I quite like the away kit. I don't know if you've seen that one, Glenn. It's it's white with a a single blue stripe down the. Uh, I think it's the left side of the shirt. Um, blue shorts. I think that's quite an interesting. Bit of a hark back to the early sixties and the the old white and blue hoot uh, shirt. So I, I think that was quite an interesting choice. Yeah, well, I remember that. I mean, that was the one that the fans voted on, so they really can't complain about that one. I I recall the vote for that one. That was when the infamous pink kit was a choice. Um, yeah, the uh, the middle seat. Yeah. So uh, that that was a selection, and whilst it wasn't the one I chose, um, now that it's been made, it looks quite smart. And I do like the collars on the new shirts as well. Um, I've, I've forgotten bygone era was you know collars on the shirts, um, which seems to have gone in the modern day football. So uh, well, I suppose that allows you to turn your collar up Cantona style, doesn't it? So that's always good for the old arrogant. Uh... So next time I'm in Croydon, and I come through kicker a pants. <laughs> So there you are, all you full, full kit wankers listening out there in internet land. The, the, the you've got the seal of approval from Achtung Moor, from Glenn and Nick on the two um, kit, sh- kit shirts this season. I think they're quite nice both, so they do deserve to be bought to um, you know for your for your kids or as a collector's item, whatever whatever the case may be. Certainly not to be worn though. Not there's one thing that we disapprove of, as as Glenn said, is grown men wearing football shirts. Yeah, which apparently, according to I think it was a Derby fan, was it not? Yeah, uh, said that that was the reason we got relegated because we don't wear shirts at Millwall. We don't, we don't. So there we go. It's our own fault that the club's in such a state. If we all wore shirts and waved some flags around, we'd uh, we'd be in the Premiership by now. What the club should do is get Ralph Lauren or Stone Island or one of those names and brands to put together a, a football kit, and then they would shift in big, big exactly. numbers. But no. I should be commercial director, not Alan Williams, shouldn't I? So yeah, overall, I, I, I'm I'm feeling optimistic. Um, Harris says he wants quality over quantity next season, and if we can maintain the impetus that we had in those last few games of last season, I think it's it's you know it's a season to look forward to. It's certainly be nice to get back to the football again, Glenn, wouldn't it? Get away from this boring, monotonous summertime. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's bad. I mean, I've tried, I've tried, you know, I've tried to do things like watch women's football, but. Uh, it it just it just can't be done, uh, you know. The the England team the other night was a was akin to getting your teeth pulled out. Uh, <laughs> it's it des- desperate when you're watching the MLS as, a, as any kind of football at all from anywhere, and you know <laughs> you know that you're totally addicted to it. But there we are. So yeah, do you do friendlies, Glenn? Do you go to friendlies? I I can't abide friendly matches personally. Um, I'm not. I mean, I did when we used to go on tours. I mean, if there was an Irish tour again, I I you know that that's the sort of thing that. I love it's like combining a holiday with 
going to see the team and having a laugh and a beer. Yeah. Uh, you know, going on the tours in Ireland, uh, I hated going to Scotland, but, you know, when we did Ireland, that was great under uh, a couple of managers. Um, but all these local games are, are boring as hell and I've no interest in them. I will go to AFC Wimbledon because I haven't been there before. Kingstonian's old ground, isn't it? We've also got an interesting home fixture to Portuguese second division champions, CD Ton Tondela. Um, I'm not sure I know what to make of that fixture, but um, I can't see me making it, to be honest. I've, I've never... I, 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 rare is the friendly that I've been to. I just find them monotonous and, and dull and tedious. So, um, for me, first game of the season will be Shrewsbury away on Saturday, August the 8th, when we will be producing a an edition of Actung Mill with some football to talk about. Um, friendlies are going to pass on personally, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to your Wimbledon trip then. There we, there we go. Well, I'll wait for the influx of your not proper wall on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate you doing the show tonight, then. Difficult with no football to talk about, but I think we've um, we've covered the main items of the summertime. Uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, Sid Nelson has promised to kick about in the park, so if that happens, I'll uh, I'll give us a report on on what happened there. Sid, if you're listening, mate, we want to get that on video. We want to get that on our YouTube channel. That'd be great. Fantastic stuff, Glenn. Appreciate your time tonight, mate. That's brilliant. Thanks for coming and we'll talk to you again in the new season. Yep, here's the season starting. Achtung. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mailbag. All right, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to... Neil, Crazy Hawks Andrews, big welcome back to the show, Neil. Hello. We are doing something that we've been talking about for some time. Didn't get it together last year when the actual anniversary of the First World War took place. But you and me have been cooking up for a little while to talk about the impact of both of the World Wars on Mill Football Club, but also on football more generally. Yeah, yeah. So the lead into this, I thought, would be just to mention uh, the card display that I thought... Um, went very well at Watford last last year, Watford away. Um, it just struck me, and sometimes we live in a bit of a bubble at Millwall, but it just struck me how these cataclysmic events had national significance, and it sounds stupid and trite when you say that back, but to see that striped car display at the Watford end with a poppy in the middle, I found quite moving. It was, it was, it was an impressive display. 
Obviously, every village in the country, every town has got its first World War Memorial. Catastrophic event in our history. Yep, and um, I think, it goes without saying, I think every single club um, lost a man or lost a player during the war or lost someone connected to the club. Even Celtic. Celtic lost six. Even Celtic. Even Celtic. What, Celtic. The, the Irish yeah. Rovers themselves. Yeah. Celtic, um, yeah, they lost six at least during the First World War, including a player called Peter Johnson, who actually played in the Cup Final in 1914. He died two years later. And they're the ones that always don't really, um, should we say, respect the poppy or... They struggle know, with they, it, they? They do struggle. Um, they struggle it with reasons you probably could understand if you wanted to really be bothered about it. Yeah. But they also seem to forget their history and the fact that, you know, they had a large contingent of their players and club go to the First World War and give their lives for the cause, which and they always forget about. As did many, many Irishmen from what is now the Irish Republic and then was part of the United Kingdom. Separate subject entirely, but perhaps an awkward part of a history that many over there and perhaps even here want to disregard. It's, it's an awkward truth, isn't it? It is a very awkward truth, but it's kind of funny because um, football is kind of instinctively involved with the First World War in that, you know, most of the recruiting drives... Um, took places at the Grands, you know, you, everyone's heard of the football battalion. So I mean, they used to, you know, kind of have drives at recruitment at football grounds, including, funnily enough, at Millwall's. Uh, Frank Buckley's troops appeared during an FA Cup replay, Millwall v Bolton, in February 1915. Of course, that year it was the FA Cup and it was the Kharki final, as it was become known. Yeah. And they used to go there, they went to um, Clappermore, as it was then known, and, you know, really tried to get players, uh, not players, sorry, get soldiers for the calls. And it was a big kind of recruiting drive. Um, but there, there was kind of a, another side to it. Um, obviously, you remember all the players, people remember the football battalion, etc. Yeah, yeah. um, but there was people that, you know, felt that footballers should be there to serve their country, not play football, because originally they let the season continue. Yeah. Um, and not everyone was in favour of it. You know, I've got a quote here in the Times, a story in AF Pollard was quite vehement in his opposition and he stated that every club that employs a professional footballer is bribing a much-needed recruit from enlistment and every spectator who pays his gate money is contributing towards a German victory. And in the Edinburgh Evening News, there was a letter from someone who just called themselves a soldier's daughter who said that a heart should be renamed and from there on known should be known as the White Feathers of Midlothian because everyone saw them <laughs> as kind of, not draft dodgers, but you had this big kind of um, volunteer people, you know, all the yeah. powers, recruitments, all, you know, big drives. But football was allowed to continue, so people saw them as shirking from the calls, which yeah. wasn't the case. So, you know, it became very much involved in the war and everyone knows about, you know, the... First Christmas, and they yeah, had the truce, yeah. they had the game. Well, they say a game, you know, the, the last survivor said it was just a free for all 50 on each side, no one kept score, you know, it was just basically a game of football. Um, but, you know, it went on and on and on. And what is a little known fact is that the last soldier that was killed on Armistice Day of all dates, funny enough, the yeah. last British soldier killed the last person shot, yeah. um, on the Allies' side was believed to be George Brooks. He played for Derby County and was a Derby County player. So the last person to die in the First World War on the side of the British was a Derby County player. Wow. So it's always been, you know, there or thereabouts within the war. I think it's, it, it, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I've done a little bit of reading. I've been reading the... Uh, uh, the, the James Murray book, Lines of the South, and just going back to the controversy at the start of the First World War, it began obviously in August 1914, a totally different world. I, I, um, it, nowadays we look back and it, it just looks like a different, so literally a different planet. Yeah. Um, it began with a great sense of enthusiasm. I don't think that we were alone in this, I think this went across Europe. I think the Germans also 
I'm sure this is a, as almost a form of sport. It was seen as the, the greater game. I've got a poster here urging young men to join up and play the greater game, as they put it, and join the football battalion, strangely. Posters are always good on the radio. <clears throat> yeah, posters work well. But it's a, it's, I, I just find these, these recruitment posters, you can see them online, you don't have to look far to find them, very moving because there's this kind of... Um, you know, healthy-looking boys in the trenches playing the greater game, as they put it. And this was the approach they took at many, many football grounds. It is. Um, I mean, we spoke about, you know, the, the football battalion going round doing recruitment drives. But the police used to go to the games that were taking place um, after the introduction of compulsory military service yeah. to try and catch anyone shirking their duty as well. So, yeah. you know, they used the games to try and catch people out. Achtung, Milbein. But, you know, the, the first year, the season continued, people felt it should, you know... It, Volunteer role be at the start of it, wouldn't it? Yeah, Kitchener's Army. Yeah. Not Barry's, but, you know, pretty close. Um, but, you know, <laughs> one said business as usual, so the season yeah. continued. In Scotland, they actually voted to continue the, um, the Scottish FA Cup all the way through the war. And people just saw it as kind of shirking a duty. It was a, a lot more national pride, a lot of patriotism, totally, you, know, yeah. you know, like they say, you know, the feathers of Midlovian, you know, yeah, if yeah. the four feathers goes back to that, um, yeah. you know, it's kind of, you didn't do it, you were seen as a coward, you know, you were seen as, you know, doing your bit for king and country as it was then, um, and there was a lot of pressure on people to join up, but at the same time, you know, this kind of pressure led to some very, very sad stories. You know, Hearts in particular, I think Hearts is the saddest story, you know, spoken about the letter. Mm. But in November 1914, the entire 16-man squad all joined up. Right. And of that, um, seven were killed. Wow. Um, at the last game they played, they played Celtic, I think it was two weeks before the outbreak of war. And of the 11 that played, um, only two came through the one scaped. Um, and, you know, some other stats, they joined a company called the 16th Royal Scots Battalion, yeah. um, or was known as McRae's Own, after the founder and chief recruiter, uh, Sir George McRae. Um, and four of those, that seven, died at the Battle of Somme alone. The, um, there was a player called Tom Gracie. He's the only player out of all seven to actually have a grave as well. Um, yeah. Just really highlights the horror of the war, as it were. And there were two others afterwards who um, were condemned to an early grave because they were injured through the gas attacks. And there was one, a player called Bob Mercer, who actually dropped down dead during a friendly against Selkirk in 1926 because his lungs were so badly destroyed by the, yeah, by the gas. Um, you know, and they felt the pressure to go and do that. This was a very different war, wasn't it? I mean, when, when these boys joined up in 1914, we're looking at the posters, um, all referencing clubs and football and sport. Mm. It was seen as something akin to a clash of colours, you know, um, a traditional war perhaps, as, as, as may have been fought back in the 19th century. But this was a very different type of war. This was what they called industrial warfare. It was, it was devoted to the gas, the machine gun, the major artillery. It was, and football was a part of that. Um... Tottenham Hotspur, White Hart Lane, was actually requisitioned by the munitions ministry yeah. to make gas masks in 1915, which is ironic considering the, <laughs> the, 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 sounds, you, the sounds you get um, when we play Tottenham, but they actually made gas masks from 1915, and wow. I believe they made around 11 million by the end of the war, um, just from the, the factory that was at White Hart Lane. Yeah. So, you know, there was other things, you know, um, pitches were turned into training grounds, things like that. Um, but to I mean, what people don't understand is, you know, people back home felt that, you know, they were just going off to war and everything was normal. And yeah. Hearts actually sent out a parcel to their battalion um, of players, and it contained 240 pairs of socks, 
5,000 cigarettes, 20 cases of soap, 100 boxes of Edinburgh Rock, 14 <laughs> pairs of football boots, three balls and a pump. <laughs> Whether they used that, I don't know, but something tells me I don't think they did, actually. I'd imagine the Edinburgh Rock they would have thrown at the Germans to cause more damage, perhaps, than some of the No, the fans probably, you know, threw it at the linesmen <laughs> when they were 5-1 up against Shrewsbury Town. The war began with movement and then rapidly descended into trench warfare, as we've said, governed by barbed wire, machine gun attacks, gas attacks, and rapidly became a, a mincing machine, effectively, for... For human beings on both sides. The numbers are incredible uh, when you look at them. Yeah, yeah um, yes and no. Um, the, the, the First World War, it, it suffers from comparison with the Second World War um, until recently. Now it's seen as this kind of romantic adventure. You know, if you ask anyone about the First World War, they would talk about the trenches, they'll talk about football games, and they'll talk about the poetry. Yeah. Um, a lot of it was actually like that. I mean, obviously, you had the Gallipoli campaign, you had the wars, the fights in the desert, you know, you had Lawrence of Arabia, etc. Yes, yes. Um, and even in the trenches, you know, you, you get these people that romanticise it about, you know, they're living in, you know, squalor, mm. you know, they're living mm. with rats, and, you mm. know. The difference is most of these were working class lads mm. back home. They, they lived in squalor, <laughs> they lived with rats, you know, there wasn't that much of a difference. The only difference was they're being shot at, um, <laughs> and some of them were still being shot at, you know. Um, so there was this kind of really romantic element about it, but it was a different kind of war to what was fought before because people went in the trenches, and yeah. it was a stalemate, you know, there was people trying to use cavalry, anyone that's seen War Horse, the beginning of that is very accurate, you know, they put these horses into battle straight away and they mm. got mowed down by machine yeah, guns. Yeah, and it yeah. wasn't until tanks came along that you had a kind of um, movement on yeah. the ground, you know, even up in the air. I mean, everyone sees, you know, the airplanes and Baron von Richthofen, but in the yeah. early parts of the war, these planes weren't even fitted with machine guns. And there was one enterprising German who used to fly up with a load of bricks and used to drop them on, his, um, <laughs> on the enemy from above. <laughs> uh, you know, it was that kind of war at the time. <laughs> but it was a different war. Obviously, you had the Zeppelin, uh, that were coming, and um, John Le Measurer, for example, yeah. he fondly remembers, or he did fondly remember his dead, of course, um, Zeppelin's flying over London when he was free. It was Imagine one of his that. earliest memories. And Hartlepool United, or Hartlepools as they were back then, yeah. were actually bombed by Zeppelin during the war and tried to claim compensation for the German government afterwards to the tune of £2,500 for damages. <laughs> they never got anywhere, but I think Hitler remembered it because they bombed him when they, during the Second World War, so they clearly went back to have a second go, finish them off. But um, perhaps it was for the monkey. Perhaps the monkey was German. You never know. <laughs> so the course of the war began with what you might call amateur enthusiasm, a volunteer army, an increasing need for volunteers as, as casualties became ever higher at the front in, the, in France and Belgium. Um, building towards the, uh, I suppose, the, the moment of truth, which would be the Battle of the Somme in 1916, the 100th anniversary, which is, is next year. Yeah. Um, an awful event, I think, in our national history. Um, when you look at the war memorials across the country, you just see the, the, the figures for that, that first day of the Somme. It was, I can't remember how many thousands of dead, 6,000, 5,000 dead on the opening day. 20,000. 60,000 casualties. Worst ever yeah. um, day for the British Army. In one day. And the numbers just almost um, almost overwhelm you a little bit, don't they? They become too much to, to consider. Kind of. Um, having studied the event um, in great detail, a lot of it was down to not ignorance as such. You know, the, you know you've got to remember... 
again, the comparisons with the Second World War, this is the first time they've done things like heavy bombardment, you mm. know, the massive explosion people see. They really did think that the Germans would be wiped out. Not everyone actually walked over, which is the common myth. A few people walked over, but those that had a bit of nouse about them, they run. They run, yeah. They took their... I would have run. I, I would have run the other way, to be honest. Um, you know, like I say, I, I'm a hero at heart, but my leg's a coward. Um, but... Um, it was a very interesting battle, and it lasted months. You know, it didn't last one day; it lasted months. And there were gains made, there were losses made, etc. It was a very long battle. But again, football played a part in the battle. Mm. Um, you know, to give you some idea, the only ever uh, Victoria Cross won by a professional footballer was one during the Battle of the Somme. It was a second lieutenant, Donald Bell, and he received it for charging a machine gun nest armed only with a revolver and some hand grenades. Wow. Um, and he played for Bradford Park Avenue, if you remember them, went out of business in 1917. And the PFA actually paid for a, a permanent memorial to him in France. But there's another interesting story, um, some people may have come across this. The 8th Battalion, the Surrey Regiment, attacked the Prussian Guards on the first day of the Somme. And their captain, W.P. Neville, produced four footballs and they dribbled them across the battlefield. <laughs> as the joke goes, before tackling the enemy. <laughs> as uh, one would. <laughs> Neville was actually killed in the skirmish, um, but one of the balls was sent back to the battalion. is on permanent display as a memorial. But um, there, there was a lot of very, very brave men who fought in the battle. These are incredible feats of madness, bravery. What, what do you want to call that? It's, it, it veers between the two, doesn't it? Well, a lot Bravado, of I don't know what you'd call that. There is, I mean, there's, there's two other players. One... Apologies to your listeners, was a goalkeeper. Um, Lee Richmond Roos, very famous goalkeeper actually, who won 24 caps for Wales. To give you some idea, he died in October at the Battle of the Somme. That's how long it lasted. Mm. You know, he got the military medal um, yeah. after he was killed. And there was another chap by the um, Third Lanark player, Scotland, by John Ferguson, who was recommended for a VC. Nothing ever came of it, but apparently he took out four machine gun nests and cleared a 20 metre or 200 metre long trench. By himself wow. and um, never got anything. So you know, it's there's loads of acts of bravery, and a lot of them happened, you know, during that kind of battle, which kind of defies the argument that it was stalemate all along. There was movement, there were battles in this mm. war. Um, but the the problem was, like you saw with Hearts um, and the Powers Battalions, uh, what people may not realise that you know entire streets would join up together. Yeah, villages someone, would join, wouldn't they? Someone thought it was a good idea to put all these people in the same battalion, yeah. so they could be with their mates and you know have a good time and you know be there for their mates, etc. Of course, they're all in the same spot when the machine guns open, they and entire streets, together, entire we? streets lost you know their male population overnight. But if you there was um, whopping actually produced a little book after the First World War, commemorating all their dead. Yeah. And he did it by streets. And you go through it, it's just lists of deceased, deceased, deceased. Very few people survived from whopping or the blocks. And because they were in the same concentrated area of fire, which is a mistake they didn't repeat um, in the Second World War. But, you know, it was, a, it was a heavy mistake to learn about. But, you know, putting people together meant entire families were yeah. wiped out in a day. It seems trite to mention football in the face of events like that, but and, and the last season of professional football was 1914-15, <laughs> after which I think the FA decided that professional football really couldn't be sustained in, in the face of what was um, rapidly becoming a long war. I think there was the hope it would be all over by Christmas, famously. It never was over by that Christmas. And in the face of the losses and, and the, the national effort that's going to be required, building up to initially the sum, professional football ceased. And, it, and we reverted to a kind of a 
a regional style competition um, involving London clubs, I believe, in, in Millwall's case. Uh, yeah, a lot of it. It was all regional. Uh, there was no midweek games. No. Um, you know, when the Zeppelins were flying over, similar to the Second World War, yeah. crowds couldn't congregate together. Travel was difficult. I guess it was. Fixtures was a, it was. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of comic tales in the Second World War about travel. You know, people going miles to get to games only to find it's been called off, etc. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to note that uh, German, Germany in the time, their mm. football came to a complete halt. There was no football during the First World War. Um, and some teams, like Carlsruhe, struggled to put out a team for three years. Others mm. merged to try and get teams out. But following the British naval blockade of Germany, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm issued an edict, basically, that all open space was to be used for growing vegetables to feed the population of people starving. Right. So their football pitches became cabbage patches cabbage and patches potato fields. Allotments, I guess. Yeah. Wow. Achtung, Mehlball. Again, you've got the anecdotes that in Germany, you know, former England international Steve Bloomer, who, funny enough, also won a baseball medal, I believe. A baseball medal? He played for Derby County. And they used to have baseball baseball grand. That's where it came from. He left to to Berlin in July 1914 to um, coach the Britannia Club for the 1916 Olympics. And he was interred straight away when war was declared with um, Notts County's John Bearley. And uh, Blackburn Rovers' Fred Pentland, I believe it was. And um, they were taken to this internment camp. And they set up their own football league. And they had a whole season, 1915-1916. And Bloomer's team won every single game. Uh, yeah, football continued in the internment camps, things like that. But you know, German football, compared to the Second World War, just died. Um, the same with Russia as well. Russia had a budding football league at the time. Mm. And that stopped. And I think the only place that football really continued was the United States of America, <laughs> believe it or not. There is a, a, a formal war memorial at the ground. Four mill players died in the course of the conflicts. Read their names. J. Dines, C. Green, G. Porter and J. Williams, who uh, completed a couple of Southern League appearances for the club. And it is listed on, on the Lewisham website as a formal war memorial for the borough. Um, I'm trying to think where it's located, actually. It must be under the West Stand, I would think. I can't remember. Well, it might be in the club offices, I don't know. But it, it's, it's certainly there to be seen if you yeah. choose to. Yeah, I mean, there was talk when, um, years ago when Theo Pafetis was in charge and he used to visit Hoff. Mm. You know, there was talk about naming the stands. And, you know, they said, well, who would we name them after? And someone did say, well, name them after the First World War dead. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a very good argument. But there was other uh, members of the club that fought. There was one who was in the... Um, Royal Ambulance Corps, uh, what was it, the RAMC, or Rob All My Comrades, as it was then called. Um, <laughs> but he actually won the military medal for bravery as well after he, um, he stepped on a hand grenade to protect his colleagues, blew his foot off. But right. um, he was able to return as a physio, I believe, or a right. trainer, something like that. Well, um, a couple of Millwall um, players I just want to mention while we're on the, on the First World War. Uh, Bill Voicey, who um, was a player pre-World uh, World War One. When the club was actually quite a large presence in football mm. in the Southern League, um, we entered the conflict as quite a major force, and obviously the impact of war meant that we slightly went out the uh, out the window slightly over the course of the war. But Voicey um, was a, one of our players who went to France, rose through the ranks, and returned a hero. Indeed, he's mentioned in in the book here as having um, been awarded a medal for bravery under heavy fire in March 1918, which would have been the German offensive that. Uh, in the closing uh, months of, of, of the war, he was awarded the military medal and the Croix de Guerre from France. So you, mm. you don't get that for, for nothing. Conflicts thankfully closed November 
1918. Yep. Um, and as it says here, the strain of horror of the brutal four years of brutal warfare was reflected in the need for escapism. People flocked back to football grounds after the war, although there was apparently quite a tattered air and quite a tattered look to some of the clubs. Yeah, there's, um, you know, you, you can see the photos, some people didn't have strips and things like no. that. It was the same after the Second World War as well. What is often overlooked, funny enough, you know, I know we've reached the end of the war and, you know, it's all over. There was actually two football battalions. Everyone remembers or has heard of the, the football the battalion. One. Yeah. Yeah. There was actually another one formed in 1915 and they actually went to France and played games behind enemy lines to entertain the troops. And they, in December 1915, show you how good they are, they mm. beat the Royal Engineers, previous cup winners, of course. Of course, yeah. 19-1. 19-1. <laughs> so, uh, bit of a one-sided game, that one. There's a the result. Yeah. One last unusual fact um, at the very end of the war, and I'm just reading here that amongst the middle squad, afflicted by war and afflicted by troop movements, we had three Canadian soldiers in our team at the end of, well, at the, uh, the first game of the piece. So. For the throw-ins, good, like Adrian Saroos. <laughs> So, and funny enough, um, just to touch on that, you know, there was a lot of football first, you know, the VC, there was the last player killed was um, a footballer as well, the Derby County player, yeah. but the first black officer in the British Army was obviously Walter Toll, which some people may have heard of, he's been in the papers recently, yeah, one yeah. of the first, not the first, no. black professional. Right. He played for Northampton Rangers, etc. He joined up, enlisted, rose to the rank of second lieutenant, and he died at the second battle of the Somme in March 1918, and he was awarded the military cross as well. So there was a lot of footballers out there who won these medals for their bravery, and yeah. a lot of people said it was because, you know, their actions on the pitch... They brought it on the team the mentality, yeah, yeah. The team mentality, you yeah. know, for me, comrades, etc. And a lot of them won medals, but a lot of clubs suffered. I mean, Luton Town lost five players. Yeah. You know, we talked about so we talked about Hearts. We were losing four. Everyone lost players during yeah. the First World War, unfortunately. So we'll close it there. The the First World War ended with Millwall as uh, still a Southern League club, I believe, at that point, and we were to join the the Football League finally. I think it was 1920, 1921, yeah, something like that. Something like that. We became a third member of the third division, um, where prior to the First World War, um, we were one of the major forces in Southern football. Um, so as ever, if you study any mill history, you'll see huge amounts of promise, cataclysmic events, and then we're left clinging on for dear life afterwards. And so it was at the end of World War One. Um, just one last poignant piece. I'm just looking at the, uh, the James Murray book. And just to put it all in perspective, there's a, a, a piece from a programme at the end of the war, a benefit match for the widow and child of late Jack Williams, one of the middle players who was killed at the front. Uh, a local derby against Crystal Palace, 3.30pm kickoff, Saturday, May the 5th. Um, there was a National War Football Fund uh, established in 1917 to kind of um, support yeah. people, you know, families, bereaved. We've had to stretch a long way, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. We'll etc., yeah. But I think they used to play games to raise money, etc. Yeah. Used to get a lot of that. Um, same with the ball war, funny enough, yeah. which we we spoke about. Cause the yeah. first ever professional footballer, as it was, died during the ball war. Nineteen eighteen, nineteen nine, nineteen oh eighteen, eighty nine, nineteen oh one. In like South that. Africa, yeah. uh, Gilbert Goldsmark, who played for Newton Heath, who became Man United. Sure. He had signed for them, played nine games, and was killed in action the following February. And to give you some idea where Newton Heath was going, they disputed the transfer fee with the club, saying, well, we didn't fulfil his potential. <laughs> Go figure, you know. Achtung, Mailball. All right, welcome back after the break. Um, so we've done the First World War, as far as you can ever say such a, 
simple throwaway thing about an event of that, of that um, stature. Uh, and now we're going to look at the impact of war on football and Millwall of the Second World War. Um, and just to give us a little bit of perspective, obviously the Second World War began in 1939 after a steadily worsening situation in, in Central Europe, the rise of a certain German gentleman called Adolf Hitler being... Uh, He's Austrian. He's Austrian. Um, a certain Austrian gentleman by the name of Adolf Hitler and, he, and his incessant demands on, on, on territory. Um, at the same time, just, as, just to make a, a slightly odd contrast, Millwall at the time of the outbreak of the Second World War, World War they were actually reasonably well placed. They were even talking about a drive to the top flight, first division football. Very good. I mean, it, older listeners will remember, obviously, the, um, the run to the FA Cup semi-final, yeah. where they beat Chelsea, Derby and Man City on the way. You know, yeah. Never ever mentioned in these FA Cup moments of giant killing, obviously. No. Um, got promoted. It was... Yeah, you know, really going places. Uh, you know, one of the best supported clubs in London as well. And, Invested um, in the stadium. I think yeah. they built um, what, what I remember as the old seats. You'll remember it too, but that was a, a much, much larger yeah. stand. The, the clock went up. You the know, there, there was a lot of investment and um, the club was going places. It was gearing up for first division football. And then, lo and behold, um, Hitler invades Poland. Yeah. And we went into Europe. <laughs> And we got into Europe yeah. by a different method. By the back door, yeah. By the back yeah. door. Um, the First World War begat the Second World War. I think that's probably a very simple way to put it, but the, um, the after-effects of um, the peace that was imposed on Germany led to the rise of Nazism, fascism in Europe, and brought us to the point where war broke out in 1939. Um, I, think, I think it's fair to say that as, for an, as an impact on a Millwall football club, the Second World War was, was a true catastrophe in, in where it, we started and where we finished. Yeah, it, it was probably the worst thing ever to happen to the club, if, yeah. if I'm honest. Um, it probably destroyed all momentum. Didn't get that momentum back for years. You know, came back and you know quickly returned to the Third Division South. Um, just back nearly ten years afterwards, you know, back in what was then Division Four, and, you know, the newly formed Division Four, and you know, it was going nowhere fast. It's unfortunate those things happen, you know, yeah. where for the grace of God we would have been, you know, we had a couple of England internationals in the side, um, in J.R. Smith, the last player to play for Millwall for England, um, you know, we, we were going places. Unfortunately, you know, war comes along and it, it takes all that away, you know, it wasn't only for Millwall, obviously, many clubs are affected once again. Footballers got a better time of it, if we're honest, in the whole, you know, yeah. on the whole they got a better time of it because they were, you know, employed as PT instructors, but, you know, some people still had a go at them, you know, we talked about the white feathers before, yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of carried on, and, you know, they, they used to have, they tried to continue with the football, they recognised the benefits of morale, of entertainment, and, yeah, yeah, entertainment, and, you know, keeping the spirits up, but, you know, even when people, you know, you have people like Stanley Matthews who are playing, um, one-off games to try and raise money, and as they walked past, people would shout out, you know, D-Day Dodgers or PT Commandos at them, you know, and it, it took, you know, a contributed effort in the war, but, you know, not every footballer, you know, ended up as a PT instructor. No. You know, most of them, you know, actually did some kind of service during the war, if not all of them. You yeah. know, it wasn't like these actors in Hollywood. You know, David Niven famously joined the Air Force. Um, John Wayne, whether you believe him or not, wasn't allowed to join the Army, but never saw conflict. But, you know, a lot, a lot of these players... OK, so some of them didn't join the Army. Some worked down the pits, some become military yeah. policemen, some, you know, ARP, etc. 
you know, they all put the effort in, they all, you know, yeah. do for the calls. But, you know, we'll, we'll probably get on with that later. But, you know, people like Lynn Shackleton, he was, he tried to join up, but he was in a reserved occupation because he was making radios at the time. And right. obviously, radios for Spitfires and all your, your bombers were critical. So he yeah. was allowed to join up. Yeah. Um, you know, but he was in a reserved occupation. But there was another one, just to mention another goalkeeper, Chesterfield's Ray Middleton went down the mines because the mines, you know, miners essential, were essential. Work, totally. But um, he decided to insure his hands for two thousand pounds just in <laughs> case anything went wrong. <laughs> We've mentioned the First World War. That was very much um, the first modern war. Um, it happened over there in France. It didn't really touch the home front to any great extent. A few air raids mm. and a few. Um, obviously, apart from the huge losses of men and material, but the Second World War was a total contrast in that there was an expectation that bombing would um, would be, you know, a, a tactic used very early on, and mm. so it turned out to be in, in what we know as the Blitzkrieg of 1940, when Bermondsey and New Cross, Dockland areas took an absolute pounding. They did. There, there's, um, you know, they decided to keep it going. You know, there was touring football sides keep morale up. They stopped the league, so Portsmouth held on to the cup for years, which they're, they're very fond of telling everyone. But they decided to create these kind of wartime leagues, the yeah. wartime cup finals, obviously, that you know, people remember the 1945 one when we yeah. played yeah. Chelsea. Yeah. Although we're four guest players, and Chelsea had seven guest players or something like that, and both of them shared the 12th man, you know. But that happened, people had guest players. Um, you know, just touching on that as a great anecdote up in Scotland, uh, I think it was Airdrie got to a semi-final and they drafted in Stanley Matthews, so they were playing Dundee and because they drafted in Stanley Matthews everyone saw this as cheating and started tuning on Dundee and Dundee won 3-1 but um, to give you some idea, September 7th 1940, first game of the season uh, air raid side and sounded at the valley with one minute left to play Chum were losing 4-2 to Millwall well, there's nothing new there nothing new there, let's be honest <laughs> They'll do anything to try and end the game, won't they? Um, but such was the bombardment. The shrapnel started to fall on the ground and on the pitch, and so the teams were taken off. Whiskey was taken from the boardroom to try and fortify fainting women in the crowd. Of course. And when the all-clear stand, the teams returned to complete the last 60 seconds of the game. <laughs> Unfortunately, they couldn't convince the fans to return for the last 60 seconds of the game. They played it out in front of an empty Valley Stadium. But they did, but it was a common thing that, you know, people would play on. Um, mm. There's a very funny story in Malta, you know, the soldiers would play football when they were off duty, yeah. even if there was um, an air raid going on. And, you know, there's reports of shrapnel hitting the roofs and things like that, but they didn't care. You know, they, they just wanted to play football. They didn't care. Or they, who knows? Well, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a different generation, and we live in a health and safety conscious world now, and you, these, these stories are amazing, aren't they? They are. I mean, everyone knows about Christmas Day, the truce, people yeah. play football. What is less known is D-Day, following D-Day, all the landing crafts, all the ships, all yeah. the crews, board, challenged each other to games of football on the beaches. On the beaches. <laughs> on the beaches. Don't know what they used for goals, but they challenged each other on the beaches, and they used to play football. Well, they would miss that up-saving private Ryan, didn't they? They did, they did, although um, everyone remembers Escape to Victory, but, you know, it's actually based on true stories. These... POWs used yeah. to actually play, you know, form leagues yeah. and have internationals like Michael Caine says in the film where yeah. they used to play for each other. And there was one prison camp in Germany had so many um, ex-footballers that they could name a League 11 within the prison of war camp. <laughs> Early stages of war, football was um, converted to regionalism, as, as you say. There's also restrictions on crowd numbers allowed in stadiums in the, in the early parts of the war. There was. Um, there were. And um, a lot of teams couldn't, couldn't play at all, so they no. couldn't compete. Um, 
For example, Exeter City's ground was handed over to the US Army. They used it as a training yes, ground, yeah, so they couldn't use it. Um, there were some others. Uh, Swindon Town became a prisoner of war camp, yeah. so they couldn't actually compete. Um, but there was actually, you know, you talk about travel and the numbers. In 1941, the league actually expelled 14 clubs, including Millwall. So it was all the London clubs, uh, plus Reading and Crewe, believe it or not. And they were joined by Watford, Portsmouth and Brighton. And basically, they, um, they were basically in these fixtures. Mm. They had to travel miles, seaside results, etc. And they didn't want to go because there was no guarantee that they get, get there, yeah. B get back or C get bombed yeah, and crew yeah. were the same they were put into a southern section despite being up near Manchester and they didn't want to travel and so the league decided to expel them they right. were going to get rid of all the clubs they appealed it was all dusted under the carpet and that therefore well, that's why you got the London League that year because yeah. they were allowed to play each other but you know they were still trying to enforce their authority on these clubs despite the fact there was a war going on and they had to travel all these miles to play games it was stupid Achtung, Mehlball. There was a, um, a dispute I read about in the in the um, in the James Murray book. We uh, at the time of the outbreak of war, Mill had a, a highly um, controversial uh, personality manager, uh, not Ian Holloway, but uh, a guy called Charles Hewitt. Mm -hmm. um, a, a big figure in, in the club's history. He was, he was twice manager of Millwall, but. Um, I think the kind of man almost deserves a show in his own right. Maybe we'll do that another time because he's a very interesting character. But he was he was Mr. Millwall, Mr. Personality, and he led the club from um, you know to some success prior to the war, and then it broke out. And um, he, during the course of the Battle of Britain, Mill managed to sack their manager <laughs> for financial irregularities. I don't know if it was quite bung material, but it was, it was a dispute over ten shillings. Yeah, yeah. should have done that to Holloway. <laughs> Oh, Britain's on telling you're fired. Only Millwall can yeah. sack a manager in the, in the, in the, in the throat of a battle for national survival, Neil. Yeah, but it's kind of it's business as usual. That's the way you've got to look at it. It really was business as usual. Um, you know, the, the problem was, like we were saying with the guest players and your Stanley Matthews, that if you wanted people to play for you, you maybe would have given them a bung or something. But yeah. I think his actual financial irregularities went back to before the Battle of Britain, you know, it was uncovered then. Um, anyone that's ever read um, Inside the Lines Then or yeah. In and Out the Lines, yeah, I think yeah. it's John Shepard's book. Yeah. You know, these players in the 50s, they were no different. He was selling his tickets on Cup Final Day. Yeah. There's hints yeah. of match fixing even then, yeah. which they don't really there do. There's nothing new. I think that's the yeah. interesting part. I mean, what we have now is a world of technology but there's nothing new in terms of human behaviour and if people could fix a match and get a, get a yeah. bet on it possibly who wouldn't, who wouldn't? Yeah. <laughs> anyway back to the war mm. <laughs> now the, the the cataclysmic event from Millwall's point of view came in the um, early hours of 1943 April the 14th when a Luftwaffe raid I think this was what they called a, a mini blitz the, the blitz finished in 41 mm. and the Luftwaffe were uh, trying to mount an air offensive and a lone raider, as it's put in in in, uh, in in lines of the south, dropped a bomb which hit the hit the den in the corner by the old Ilderton Road clock end. I believe it was an hour after a game had just finished yeah. as well. So you know it could have been a lot worse. But considering the location to the docks, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, you know, been untouched until that. Yeah, point, there, there was a few grounds that were bombed several times. You know, and at Sunderland, they were bombed and the policeman died there. Yeah. Um, but you know. The, the grounds were always used, you know, always, that was always the danger. They could be bombed and, you know, everyone got bombed pretty much in the Second yeah. World War. And 
you know, I, I believe he went to play with Cholton for a while, and you know, while they had to clear the mess up. But you know, it, it was it was one of those things. You know, you would lose your ground. You know, you could lose your ground, etc. Although we've lost lost half of our North mm. Terrace. There, I'm just looking at the picture here, which you listeners will have to look up on the internet. It's on the Mill History website. It's a fascinating picture. But it's uh, a bomb landed on the, where the clock was. It's on the old um, corner of North Terrace. And there's a crater from, well, looks like from the moon. It's yeah. a massive crater. Yeah, I, the, the, I think the most interesting one at the lot has to be Birmingham Cities. Mm. Um, their stand burned down. Yeah. Not thanks to the Luftwaffe, but thanks to the... Um, the young guard of the all people. Guard set fire to Birmingham's No, not quite. They were trying to put out the fire they had to keep warm, <laughs> and one of them mistook what they thought was a bucket of water for a bucket of paraffin. And away you go, <laughs> basically. So, yeah, they lost an entire stand, um, but quite a few clubs were bombed, and, you know, yeah, it, it led, led to some. And in coincidence with, with fire safety, I think, was just probably a feature yeah. of the day. I mean, we, we also lost our stand, not, not from the Luftwaffe, but a week later there was a. Uh, a London Senior Cup final between Tooting and Dulwich Hamlet, mm. where somebody must have discarded a cigarette and our showpiece it went. Yep. wooden stand of the time, invested in by the club at great cost for first division football, mm. went up in flames. So that was more than the, the impact of the bomb, mm. that was a true disaster for Millwall. Wembley was bombed as well, and um, they hit the dog kennel next to the dog, dog track, obviously. Did they? It took them two days to round the dogs up, apparently. But, you know, and that, that's uh, the comedy of war, as they like to say. But, you know, it, it is, you know, uh, it'd be very hard to actually find a club that wasn't bombed, that no. was on the east coast of England and even Scotland. Here's a little story. In the aftermath of the impact on the den, West Ham, of all people in all the world, offered up some park for Mills use as an alternate stadium. Um, listeners will be pleased to know that we turned them down, so we've never actually played at Upton Park as a home ground, um, but we did um, take up Cholton's offer of playing at, at the Valley whilst the den was um, put reasonably back into some condition where you could let yeah. people stand on the rubble. Different time, wasn't it? Your Different. enemy is my enemy, therefore we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> so we finished up playing a, a couple of games at Selhurst Park, um, and we did play actually, we played a couple of home games at Upton mm. Park, so there we are, there's a... There's, a, there's another um, dent in our, our, our self-image, isn't there? And the club continued, um, apparently reasonably financially securely in a strange way, because this was amateur football. Yeah. They weren't paying the players, they were guest players. There, there were guest players all over the place. Um, well, they were taking money on the gate, so yeah. money was coming in, but not necessarily A lot of it out. was charitable games, though. You know, you had um, yeah, the wartime international, you had a lot of service games as well. And there was a, a civil defence 11 beat a team from the French Free Forces 17-3 at the Den in April 1941. So it wasn't just Millwall playing, you know, they used yeah. the ground for other things as well. But there was a funny um, anecdote about Fulham fielding a player on the team sheet called S-O-Else. And when it transpired, it was someone else because they didn't know who was playing. But um, I think it was Swindon Town came to play Millwall and their manager spent the entire morning going around the docks trying to find this player they'd enlisted. Right. And in the end, he gave up and said, look, this isn't my job. And when they got to the ground, the player had been waiting for them for that two hours while he'd been going around the docks looking for him. <laughs> the area took a pounding. Um, if you go on, there's a, there's a fantastic website which um, details the landing sites of all the bombs in London, actually. And when you, when you stop and look at that, it's quite an incredible site. The dots are crowded, to say the least, in the, in the New Cross mm. area. Um, it, it's, it's well worth checking out if any listeners want to have a look on there. Bomb, bomb sites in London, something like that. You can find it on Google. Well worth a look. 
Achtung, Mehlball. We talk about the league and everyone remembers the World Time Cup finals. You've got, you know, like the London League, which Millwall played in. Um, but what most people don't realise that the, the German Championship actually ran until 1944, all the way up to the, the Ash Professional League. Um, and regional football continued until the bitter end, with Hamburg actually playing the last official recognised Nazi Germany football game the day before Hitler shot himself. So, you know, the, the Germans... <laughs> Hitler, you know, he recognised the value, and they kept playing, but it threw up loads of different things, you know, Rapid Vienna, because of the Angelos, was yeah. playing in the German league, yeah, so, you know, they yeah. become one of the few teams to win the title in two different countries when they beat Schalke 4-3 in 1941. Um, and there's a, kind of an aftermath to that story. The, the Schalke centre forward, a guy called Adolf Urban, believed his side had been robbed in the final and vowed to win the title back from the following season. Now, normally you'd take that with a pinch of salt yeah, there, yeah. centre forward, except that he was in a trench on the Eastern Front listening to it on the radio <laughs> because the players would go and serve and come back and play for a season. And he did actually, true to his word, came back the following year played in the title game, they played in Rapid Vienna again and they won 2-0. Right. And they went on to actually lose to 1860 Munich four months later in the cup final. That was his last game. He went back to the Eastern Front, um, fought in Stalingrad. was never seen again. Perished one, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. But he had, um, the early rounds, they were farcical. You know, in, uh, I think it was 1943, actually. Nuremberg won a game, 20 goals to one. You know, it was that kind of regional football yeah, league and then yeah. you built up but the Bundesliga didn't exist until 1965 no, anyway no. as some people know but you know Germany just carried on playing football as did the Italians but the Italians only did it because Mussolini insisted because the Germans were doing it but they carried on till uh, I think it was 1943 after the invasion uh, Torino won the last one such was this demand for football that Italy were playing against a Croatian side in 1942 some um, Yugoslav patriots stormed the stadium, killed six of the players and the referee. Wow. I don't know whether it was a refereeing decision or not that caused the outcry, <laughs> but there you go. Wow. But, you know... Um, Escapism. People need escapism in times, um, times of, of, of stress, don't they? It, but, you know, they were playing internationals as well. You know, Germany um, travelled to Switzerland. They played Hungary. Spain travelled through occupied territory to play Germany in an international. They're all recognised by FIFA and they carried on playing. And Germany were quite a force to be reckoned with because, you know, they basically they, they acquired all these players when they took countries over. They did not take other people's players over, didn't they? Well, the last two Jewish players was a guy called Julian Hirsch and another called Gerard Fuchs, or Uwe Fuchs as we were calling him from there on. The last two players, Hirsch was arrested and died in Auschwitz and um, Fuchs escaped to Canada. There is another interesting thing, I'm right wishing to boring listeners everywhere. In 1942, when Germany sent a team to Switzerland, won 5-3, uh, in front of a crowd of 34,000, right. their centre forward was Ernst Wilnowski, okay. scored four goals, I had to be pleased with that, but he was Poland's leading goal scorer in the 1938 World Cup. There's so, nothing you know, new there, there's nothing If England want to win the next World Cup, basically they've got to invade Italy, Germany and Spain and take it from there. <laughs> But, you know, there was a lot of internationals. I mean, there was the wartime internationals. Italy managed eight. Holland played Belgium at Walthamstow, 1941. Um, it was basically... Um, Expatriates. Um, Expatriates army. There was, I think it was the Dutch left back. Couldn't speak a word of Dutch because he lived in um, the UK for 20 years. But it's that kind of um, <laughs> mentality that kept people going. Uh, Allied armies versus Navy games. Um, there was the RAF uh, versus the, the boxing, uh, boxing... RAF versus Army Boxing Day game. 
Uh, there was a good one that saw um, Stanley Matthews and his teammate, a bloke called Dodds, they missed their train. We were talking about the travel before. Yeah, indeed, yeah. They managed to get to the ground after jumping the queue by turning up at the station and shouting, we're footballers, we've got to be at the game. <laughs> they reached the game just as people were singing the national anthem. So, you know, there was a hell of a lot of stories like that. Achtung, Mehlball. The con conflict closed for well, closed in May uh, 1945 in Europe, certainly. Um, not a month after Mills' one and only cup final to that date at Wembley. Yeah. Uh, the Football League South Cup final, as it's, as it's called here, War Cup final, as we tend to call it now, between Chelsea and Mill Athletic, as it's built on the, on the programme here. Um, it was a mix and match kind of affair, really, wasn't it? 90,000 crowd, though, watching two teams that were, you know, guest players and were The crowds much... were always big. Yeah. Throughout the war, you know, although they had this thing about, you know, um, not having so many people there, you know, these crowds and people pushing, etc. I mean, the, the what they called the Victory Internationals after the war, when England played Scotland at Hampden Park, they expected 75,000 and over 100,000 people turned up for the yeah. game. Um, you know, we were talking about supplies at the end of the First World War. Um, supplies were so short at the end of the Second World War that Scotland actually had no kit. And Tommy Walker, pre-war international, you know, he played for Chelsea, etc., yeah. actually got all his collection of old tops, and they ran out in Tommy Walker's kit, basically, because they didn't have anything else, and Millwall were the same. You know, you look at some of the photos after the war, and they've all got different Millwall tops on. You know, yeah. it was a real... It was harsh. I mean, there was Very no clothing. Harsh. I'm just looking at the Millwall lineup at the War Cup final, 1945. Uh, goalkeeper Bartram of Charlton, um, Dudley Fisher, Ludford Smith, Tyler Rawlings, Brown of Charlton, uh, Jinx, Brown Tim, Williams of Aberdeen. Uh, so that was the Millwall lineup, and then the Chelsea lineup, um, if you can call it that, consisted of uh, Black of Aberdeen, Winter of Bolton, Hardwick of Middlesbrough, Russell, must have been a Chelsea player, Harris of Wolves, Foss Wardle of Exeter, uh, Smith L of Brentford, Payne, Chelsea. Gordon West Ham and McDonald Bournemouth. So that's practically a whole side of guest yeah. players. And uh, it was a Scott, Willie Hull, who was named as 12th man for both sides. He yeah. didn't play for either of them. But, um, you know, football carried on during the war. But it's worth noting that footballs became very sparse after the fall of Singapore in 1942. Because yeah. that's where they got all the rubber from to make the balls. So, <laughs> and things like that. But, you know, there, there was actually two touring sides uh, designed to keep up morale who toured, you know, the forces. Um, one was Dennis Compton's side. Yeah. Um, there was another one uh, led by Tommy Walker in the Far East as well. And they would play all these games, you know, in Ceylon, India. I, I think it was Dennis Compton, I think I've got here, they played 13 games in 23 days during a tour of Palestine, um, 33 times in the tropical heat of India, Ceylon and Burma. Made and they were undefe stuff, then, undefeated 50 games, but, you know, Dennis Compton's effort, the war effort, was entertaining yeah. the troops playing football. Um, I know we talked about the medals won, and there was a lot of medals won, there yeah. you know, a lot of very brave uh, footballers that, that played in the Second World War. But because there were so many given out, they kind of lost. I mean, 75 British footballers died during World War II. You know, lots of them fought. Mm. You know, Stan Mortensen almost strangled himself in his parachute in 1914. Um, you know, you've, you've got Spurs' Freddie Cox was a fighter pilot. They, they all played their part in the yeah. war. But because they didn't all join up together, you didn't get the horrors like with Hearts all dying together. No. It kind of, it, it, I don't want to say lessons their contribution, that's the wrong word, mm. but it's underappreciated, I think would be a better way of describing yeah. it, no, the, no, effort no, no, no. That the players put in, 
you know, yes, some of these were PT instructors, but they were considered the fittest men in the country. So, you know, they were designed to make the soldiers fit so they could fight day after day after day. You know, they all put the effort in, but it's kind of looked down upon these days. You know, I think the Second World War, conversely, is having the, um, going through the same kind of process that the First World War went when you had all these Clint Eastwood films and all these, you know, the Dirty Dozen, mm. and, you know, Kelly's Heroes. And yeah. You never got films like that, and now you're getting all these dramas about First World War and the horrors of the trenches and all this. You rarely see anything about the Second World War these days. No. Um, and I think it's, you know, maybe people got tired of it, I don't know, or, you know, perhaps people love the romance of the First World War, but... Second has got some fascinating related stories, you know, really fascinating. It's just a shame people don't realise what's going on or what happened out there. Well, I think one thing we can say at the den is that the memory of and the acknowledgement of the sacrifices made by all of our players, and in fairness, the whole nation, um, is respected very, very well. Um, I, I, I personally think that it's, 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 it's to our credit that we... We acknowledge it in the way that we do because it's not like war is over, is it? I mean, there have been you know sacrifices since. We're talking about now the, the Northern Irish conflict. We're talking about the um, the Falkland War. We're talking about the Middle Eastern wars mm. that we've got going on now. We've still got Millwall fans, yeah, and soldiers across the country yeah. giving their lives. Achtung, Millwall. Of course, you had the soccer war of 1969, Honduras. I don't think we could go through an entire program about the war without talking about FC Start of Kiev. And, you know, okay, well, uh, um, you, you sure bounced me now, Neil. Come on. You must have heard of this one. It's kind of what Escape to Victory was based on. It was um, people often confuse it with Kiev. It was mainly Kiev players, but also, sorry, not Kiev, Dynamo Kiev players, but it's also Locomotive Kiev players. Right. When the war started, they were basically sent to work in this bakery. And when the Germans took over Kiev, they were also like working in this bakery. The Germans love football, furious things got out of football. They formed this league in Kiev, Warton okay. Kiev. And to show there was no, um, you know, it's them. No hard feelings. They invited this team along and they called themselves FC Starts. And then it was, you know, all professionals. Right. And they were playing, um, so they played the Wehrmacht, they played the Luftwaffe teams, <laughs> they played um, a Romanian uh, team, because people don't realise the Romanians fought in Russia on the side of the Germans, a few others, local militia, etc. Basically, yeah. they won every game. Okay. And uh, naturally, the Germans got pissed off with this. <laughs> and they basically said to them, you know, it's the last game, you're playing the SS, you know, the crack German army. Not only that, the referee was assessing. The Gestapo referee, not They not only won the game, <laughs> such was the, the not even arrogance, you know, such was this thing that we're not going to be put down by you. One of their players actually dribbled around the entire team, went past the goalkeeper, and in front of an empty net, stood on the ball. And then when they came to tackle him, he got the ball and dribbled them all around him again <laughs> and then scored. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. The 11 players were marched off. Uh, one was tortured and killed there and then taken off to a camp. Four um, died with a kit on. Um, they were shot. Um, the, the others were survived because the Russians made advances and basically captured the camp where they were. Um, but they've been remembered in Kiev to this day. Statues everywhere. Um, if you ever get a chance, there's a book called Dynamo. Very interesting book, details all the games, all the anecdotes you would ever need to know about this incident. But it, it was kind of what Escape to Victory was, but it was actually 
you know, based on real life events. Based on real life events, and you know, the, this team weren't going to take any shit. Sorry for swearing. From um, no, 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 no. weren't to take any shit from the Germans, and you know, refused to lie down and surrender or give the game up. And you know, no, not only gave them a good game, but basically took the piss out of them as well. And considering the referee was an SS <laughs> officer, how the hell the game? You know, the goals were ruled offside. I don't know. But I suppose if you go around the entire side, it's very hard to kind of talk a goal off, isn't it? They lacked sense of humour, the SS, when it came to things like that. Yeah. Brave men, brave yeah. men. Um, we're going to close out. Um, we'll bring it back to the den at the end of 1945. Our club was shattered by, by the Second World War. Um, we entered it, as we've said, in, in, with high hopes, and we came out of it as a, uh, a bombed-out wreck um, which went on to struggle through the 1950s and as James Murray puts it uh, we, we never truly recovered from we, we became the small club that we are now became a very small club because all the fans were bombed out so they all moved out yeah. didn't they to these new conurbations the docks died in due course the docks died um, let's not forget there was no real money in football um, you know John Shepard's book he would you know he got paid when he played if he wasn't playing, he wasn't getting paid. So, you know, he had to earn money where he could. So, yeah. You know, he used to do odd jobs here and there, especially in summer, like most people. Um, you know, some of the players were electricians. They'll do jobs around the ground. You know, some of them coming... I mean, one of the anecdotes I always love, you know, you, you say love, but it's quite an interesting anecdote, is that, you know, during the off-season, some of these players would earn money by fixing the ground up. You know, all the repairs yeah. to the ground they do during the summer, the players would do and get paid world, for it. Yeah. Completely different world. But, you know, but for their efforts and, the, you know, the effort they put in and the fact they kept the club going, it's why we're here today. And, you know, it's like many clubs and many teams have their downsides. You know, they yeah. get beaten 10-0 every week. But the point is that if you get beat 10-0 every week, it doesn't matter. If you are able to put 11 men out and keep the club going, yeah. that's a far greater result than, you know, losing a game no one will remember 50 years' time. Um, totally. I mean, we are the, the, the people who got us through both world wars. Both were, you know, um, disastrous in their different ways on, on, on the nation, but also on Millwall Football Club. So we owe them a debt to say that our club still exists, and that in itself is a, is a semi-miracle when you when you read the history. We do. It is, it is a kind of semi-miracle, and it's not only that. I mean, you look at the 1950s. So not even during the war, you look at the, the immediate post-war period. How many clubs are not around anymore? You yeah. know, you, you, your Bradford Park Avenue went out in 1970. Same reasons, you know, basically the war. Gateshead went out. Um, you know, Wokington Barrow, they're not around. You know, and these, these were clubs, you know, obviously the most famous one, Atkinson Stanley. These were clubs that could survive and then a war came along and basically they were poor, you know. Um, the, re the record attendance, lowest attendance, I think it's 13, Stockport versus someone was paid at Old Trafford because Stockport's ground was bombed. You know, it's kind of, it had a long-lasting effect and had a knock-on effect that lasted for many years. It's just interesting, again, you know, we're referring to photos, but I, I'm not going to make any apologies to this. I'm, you'll have to find these pictures in, on, on the net. But just on that point of what, what we now call austerity, I mean, it's, it's laughable when I, in some ways mm. what I hear is austerity in the current climate, when you look at the picture of Newell Football Club, 1946-47, there's about half a dozen different styles of shirt there. Um, some have been totally washed out, so the colour's gone into a sky blue, yeah. practically. Some have got white sleeves. Um, and behind them is the, uh, the top track ends with half oh, its roof missing. Um, and it's, it's just, um, it's, it's quite humbling. I mean, that's what I would call it, austerity. Yeah. A, a visibly poor, 
It was harder for the fans Harsh. though, yeah, because they didn't know what replica top to wear that day. <laughs> it might not match the teams. <laughs> no replica tops. Back that, that's this. probably where the hatred came from because the players have run out and went, "Oh, I've got the wrong top on." <laughs> there we go. Two world wars covered in an hour. Not bad. And one mention of the ball war. So and you've got the ball war mentioned oh, in NFC start. Um, great stuff. I want to thank Neil Crazy Hawks Andrews for coming on the show again. Good to have you back, mate. And welcome. Um, we're looking forward to the start of the season. Um, fingers crossed that we have a bright one. Hopefully, yeah. Although, talking of kits, I really don't like the new one. <laughs> you don't like the new kit? <laughs> it, it, it reminds me of Peterborough. Um, I, I don't, can't put my finger on it. I quite, just, I quite liked it. I, I don't know. It will probably grow on me. It, it could be the socks that do it. But I've never been a fan of the white sleeves. I've never been a fan of the white sleeves. I don't know why. But it's never appealed to me. Um, but we'll see how we go. If, if we win in it, I don't care. As long as I think we win, it's a I don't standard care. Millwall response. That as soon as the new kit is announced, you have to call it shit. It's just, it's in the DNA, isn't it? It's, it's no, the, it's no, the first we've, thing we've had, had a few over the years that you know you look at like our season's kit. To be honest, uh, like, I thought it was okay. It's funny. My favourite of recent years, and this will be controversial, was the old away Captain Morgan kit, the red the and red black red. stripes. You like that? I did oh, because yeah. when I first started following Millwall. We wore red shirts and black shorts as our wake kit. None of this gay yellow. <laughs> Can I say yellow on the radio? <laughs> I, 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 I am. I, I think it's always the, the kits that are, are in use when you first go. I mean, my first game was 1972 because I'm ancient and we played in the famous all white strip. Mm. And that to me is a mill kit. That's, that's the classic kit and that's what I would go back to at the drop of a hat. But if we must have um, a blue kit, then I, I quite like the dark blue. I think it harks back That's to it. our um, I mean, I first went in 76, so not long after you. And as Shaken Back from Halfaways said, me and him, same thing. The old Dutch big lion. That's big a big lion, lion yeah. on the shirt. Someone's been doing a replica kit of that, book a kit. Yeah. The line's too small. It's got to be massive. Got to it's right. got to get it massive. That, that's one of my fondest memories, I think. Incidentally, all. I'm going to give you a bit of publicity while we've got the, the recording running. Um, check out Neil's Twitter feed, got some fantastic photos on, on there on the fantastic site. Goalkeepers are different on Twitter and it's at goalkeepers diff D I F At goalkeeper goalkeeper goalkeepers diff goalkeepers diff uh, on Twitter. Check it out, fantastic photos. Millwall and as as you will have heard, uh, across the whole spectrum of football. Uh, well done Neil, fantastic. Cheers. Appreciate your time. No worries. Listening to Octoon Millwall, the CBL Magazine podcast. That's the Millwall News this week, and we are out of here. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.